Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elite's very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. Dr. Letitia is the epitome of academic philanthropy and social service excellence. She's been serving disenfranchised individuals and communities for over two decades and believes in helping others transform their thinking to change their lives. Dr. Letitia is the president and founder of Great Joy Counseling and Consulting Services, where she and her team of therapists provide innovative therapeutic psychotherapy and life coaching services to thousands of individuals, couples, families, and groups each year. Hi, Letitia. Thanks so much for coming on the Industry Elites podcast today. We're so excited to have you on and to hear a little bit about your journey and have an in-depth discussion about mental health during these times. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to speak to you guys today. We're glad to have you on. So as the founder of Great Joy Counseling and Counseling Services, maybe you can tell us a bit about what drove you to start your own business and wanting to work in the field that you're currently servicing today. Sure, Natalie. So I have actually been in this field for the past 22 years, and I did so many different things um, in the field. And I finally decided after doing a lot of nonprofit management and other leadership positions, and then I was in academia full time for a while, that I really wanted to be more directly able to impact the lives of individuals, of couples, of families, of groups, and of communities. So I decided in 2015 to go ahead and start my private practice. And I can tell you that it has been quite a journey. In the past five years, we have served over 3,000 unduplicated individuals. So we are just so pleased to be able to provide services at this level. No, that's definitely amazing. And for 3,000 individuals, and you're saying that's just over the period of time, that's essentially, that's awesome. So we've all been affected by COVID-19 in different ways. And a large amount of individuals have said that their mental health has also been affected in more of a negative light. So how do you really believe that that's played an effect on people's mental health? Well, you know something, I have seen a huge jump in people reaching out for counseling and therapy um, since COVID hit in March. So that is something I'm really happy about because I think that folks are really seeing that this is something that is difficult to cope with. You know, in the United States, the, the last time I think we were rocked by something that could even be similar to this was on 9-11. And I did a talk, uh, Natalie, and what I said was that even though 9-11 was completely devastating and harmful for us in the U.S., we could still go outside, right? Like you could still go shopping. You could still go out to eat with friends and grab brunch, right? You could still go to the movie theaters. So COVID is something that is a pandemic. That is a global incident. The world has not seen anything like it since the Spanish flu in 1918, right? So nobody alive can give us any pointers on how to handle such a serious 
issue, you know, with schools being closed and parents having to navigate work as well as navigate the education for their children. You know, people are dealing with issues with budgeting, you know, funds are tight for folks. And so that brings on additional stress and anxiety. And I think the biggest part is just not knowing what to plan for. You know, we are used to things having an ending, right? Whether those are holidays or even war, right? Things have an end. But with something like this, you just don't know. So our actual movements in our daily day lives have been impacted so much that people are struggling with finding a sense of normalcy. And I think that's where therapists come in. That's where um, counselors come in to really help individuals hone in on how to create normalcy in spite of chaos. Do you think once we kind of start to establish our what we would define as our new normal, do you think that there's still going to kind of be this continual, maybe more gradual increase towards mental health? Like people kind of still seeking that out almost in a post-pandemic kind of PTSD level? Absolutely, because I think it's happening now. I think that people now, you know, seven, eight months in, depending on when you started counting, right? I think people are starting to accept, hey, this is our new life. We have to do gloves. We have to do masks. We have to, you know, be limited um, with where we go and how many people can assemble, etc. But I think that it is still psychologically something that is difficult to accept for the long term because it's only been a few months. So on one hand, it's been six, seven, eight months. But on the other hand, it's only been that amount of time. So it takes people a long time to adjust. I've been working with a lot of parents to try to get them to manage their stress and manage the stress of their children. And one thing I say is this, for all of us as adults, right, it's tough for us to change up our routine, right? I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but if I go to a coffee shop and my barista isn't there and my coffee order is not the same, like I'm devastated by that. So it's like, imagine how children are dealing with not being with their peers. Or imagine how some of us are dealing with not being with our colleagues and just having our regular routine. So I see the need for mental health care actually increasing as we continue to navigate COVID. I definitely don't see it decreasing at all. Yeah, it's funny you kind of mentioned that too, where our routines are so disrupted. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were just talking about how, so our our business has been working from home since mid-March. So we've kind mm-hmm. of got ahead of the shutdown. Um and we were just talking about how there's no individual days anymore. It just seems to be like one long groundhog day. Every yeah. day is the same. You get up, you commute to your living room, and yeah. you just kind of keep going from that. And it, for us, we were talking about how kind of stressful it is to have limited change. Even before, like I feel like our regular lives are still pretty routine, but... There is that chance to switch up, or as you mentioned, there's that chance you can go for brunch, or you can try a different coffee shop, or even just physically go to that coffee shop, which has really changed now. Do you think that everybody should be kind of searching for counseling or therapy? How would you go about knowing if you need it, per se? So I I definitely think that everyone should feel comfortable reaching out, right? And I don't think that this is something that 
people are handling in the same way. So not everyone will need the same services. Some people may need to just have one session just to get some of their emotions out, get some guidance and direction, and they're fine. Other people may need to check in weekly, depending on their stress levels and how they're handling things. Other people, it may be biweekly or monthly, etc. But I definitely think that every person impacted should have that opportunity because you really don't know until you start talking just how difficult this has been. I think you hit the nail on the head, Vicky, when you said there's not a lot of transition. So you have people watching television in their living room and also doing their Skype meetings or their Zoom meetings for business. And I really, really advise against that. I think that we need to absolutely have a certain place in our homes where we conduct business. And then when that time is over, you go to the rest of your home and you go about your life because I think that it all can run together. Um, a lot of businesses I think are seeing, if you look at the trends that people are even more productive at home and that's because there's no really hard start time and hard stop time. And I think that we have to really guard our energy and we have to be really on top of ensuring that we don't get burnt out, right? Like, so at first, I think the first few months of this, Vicky, you know, people were, were kind of, you know, going with the flow, like, hey, I'm home. I get to do meetings in my PJs and all of that. But as time began to run on, people really didn't see where work stopped or where school stopped and where their lives began. And so we have to really be definitely deliberate and intentional about how we're spending our time, where we're spending our time, you know, really monitoring things so that we can be okay mentally and emotionally. Yeah, I really just want to touch on one thing you said. And it's about where we started at the beginning. Everyone's super excited. We're all getting to work in our like pajamas if you wanted. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't even have mm -hmm. to change. But a lot of times, like what we were talking about before and a big thing that we talk about within the podcast is really about work-life balance. So it's hard to keep a work-life balance now, especially being in our same environment longer than we normally are. Even that drive to work, if you're commuting like a half hour to work and a half hour back, that's still an hour of time that you're separated from one place to another. So mm -hmm. now going into this, it's really about finding your balance in that and knowing like, okay, you have to know that if your work day ends at like four or five in the evening that you're looking to stop around that time because yeah it's great if we're putting in that extra effort every so often to get our work completed but if we're doing that every single night eventually our burnout is going to happen a lot quicker than most so i think that's obviously really essential for people to take a look at the next thing we just want to want to touch on is what types of improvements have you seen to mental health awareness over the years because essentially obviously even the last few years previous to a lot of companies making movements about mental awareness and mental health, there was a lot of stigma around it and people had trouble mm -hmm. talking about it and whether it's they didn't want that label associated with themselves because it's not, they're not what the label says they are type thing, but maybe getting a bit of your insight on what that would be like. Absolutely. So I think, you know, being in the field for the last 22 years, I've definitely seen um, much more awareness. I see mental illness being more normalized, right? And so you can see movies or television shows or, you know, anything on social media where mental illness is talked about. So I think that the more that we normalize it and we talk about it in our society, the more people will feel comfortable accessing mental health care. You know, in the U.S., the number two reason for individuals to go out of work on disability is depression, right? Wow. So people would think it's it's physical health illnesses, et cetera, but it's 
not, right? So we, I think, as a society have had to acknowledge that mental health plays a huge part in one's overall wellness. And I think that it's just, it's super important for us to recognize that just like we would not shame or ridicule a person if they have to take insulin for diabetes or they have to take medication for, you know, their heart trouble or for high blood pressure or something like that. We have to normalize the treatment of mental illness. What I say all the time is this, just like doctors can be educated and trained and, and, help you repair, you know, uh, something surgically or help you take a pill so that you can feel better in your body. We as doctors and mental health experts are trained to help you feel better mentally and emotionally. And I think that people are starting to see that even though they may have, you know, their, their physical health, they may be, you know, people who eat great meals or they may exercise regular, regularly, but they may struggle with their mental health. And they're seeing just how significant that can be and how impactful that can be. One thing I say to people all the time is, of course, we all want to be whole, right? We all want total holistic wellness. But I believe strongly that if you're okay mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even if you're struggling a bit physically, you can endure that much differently than if you're strong as an ox physically, but you're not okay mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And I think over the years, we've seen much more emphasis on, like you mentioned earlier, work-life balance, you know, individuals really self-actualizing, really putting themselves in the position to be okay. I think the time has come. And I think in the last 20 years, I've seen a huge shift in the normalization of mental health services and treatment. Stressing the importance of people's mental health and trying to seek help for anything that you may come across as an issue to yourself, what do you think some of the signs for family members can look out for, for those that they might think is struggling or someone that's not, I guess you could say, obviously, like it appears that they're struggling? What are some of those signs? Absolutely. So I think that one of the things that that connects us as human beings is what I um, like to say some of the things on the no list, right? So it's never about what you do, but it's always about why you do them. So I think that if families are seeing that there's an increase in risky behaviors, any increases in, you know, spending money recklessly or gambling more than usual, any high-risk sexual behavior, behaviors, any increased drug or alcohol use or abuse, anything that is a bit out of the ordinary for that person is something that needs to be addressed. Another one that is often missed by families is isolation, right? So you can have a person and they can kind of hide behind, oh, well, I'm just working hard. You know, after work, I just want to go to my room. And and I think it's fine to appreciate people people's boundaries and allow them to have that me time and that alone time. However, we have to know when it becomes dangerous, right? We have to know when it's like, wait a minute, you know, aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so has been, you know, in their room every day after work for the last month. Like we as family members, um, as friends, we have to be able to check in on one another. One thing I say all the time is this, oftentimes you ask people, how are you? And you're automatically waiting for them to say fine in you, right? It's almost like there's yeah. no there's no separation. Like, I don't know what people would say if someone said, hey, I'm actually not doing okay. You know, I've actually been having nightmares or I've been having trouble sleeping or I've been struggling with food or I've been struggling with negative thoughts. Like, we don't anticipate that. It's almost like, how are you? 
finding you, and then we go on. So we really have to stop being so busy and we have to stop and really check in with people in a real way, in a holistic way, in a way that allows us to really ascertain if that person is truly okay. One thing I do in my personal life is if I'm asking someone how they are doing, I'm not distracted, right? So I don't have my phone. I'm not like, you know, fumbling through my purse. I'm literally connecting with them, looking at their body language, looking into their eyes to really understand if they're okay. And it makes a difference. And I think just giving that bit of attention in our interactions with those we love or those we are connected to can really make the difference between them being okay and not. That definitely is true. I think what the one thing they were saying about us as individuals is that we're so quick sitting in a conversation waiting to put in our input. Like we're sitting yeah. there at some points, people are just like, okay, I'm thinking about what I want to say. This will be a really great point. I'm just waiting for this person to finish and then I can go. But that, at that point when we're thinking continuously about what we were wanting to say, we totally missed what that individual was saying to us. So if we were just expecting a certain answer, like you said, if they just said, oh, we're fine, then you just can go into yours. But then it would be a total redirect if they were like, well, I'm actually not doing too well. We'd be like, okay, well, my point was this, but now it totally doesn't align with what you were saying. So we got to do a redirect. So exactly. we definitely have to do a lot more listening as individuals, I feel like. And that's hard for everybody. Um, and one of the things we actually want to get a little bit of of your advice touching on is what types of individ or individuals and situations do you see come through your door? Like, is it more so younger individuals? Is it older? And then what, how have you seen these people transform through life coaching services? You know something I'll tell you, I think it runs the gamut. So the youngest client that we've seen at the practice is four years old. And the oldest client that we've seen at the practice is 86 years old. So it really, really runs the gamut. I think that people are really starting to hone in on their families and on themselves and really seeing the importance of therapy at all stages and all walks of life. And that is something I am so excited about. I think for our younger people to address issues early on, it just sets them up for an amazing life. And it normalizes, you know, mental health treatment. It normalizes speaking to someone if things are not okay and raising your voice to say that. And I think for our elders, them recognizing that there's still life to live, right? Like every day is a new day. So we still have an opportunity to change and to grow and to have the lives that we truly desire. My 86-year-old client probably meets treatment plan goals faster than people have his age because he's really, really focused on yeah. ensuring that the rest of his life looks the way he wants it to look. So I'll tell you, it really runs the gamut. I've also, um, though, with COVID, have been seeing a huge amount of couples come in, right? Because yeah. oftentimes, you know, couples are away from one another for eight, 10, sometimes even 12 hours or more during the day. So when they're together, it's daytime, <laughs> it's it's lovey-dovey time, etc. But now our folks are on top of one another. Everyone's in the kitchen at the same time. Everyone's in the yeah. living room at the same time. You know, you're starting to see some personality quirks. You're starting to see, see some things in partnerships that you may not have noticed before or you've looked over. So we've been seeing a huge surge in couples and families as well. So we were kind of talking about types of individuals that kind of need help or family members and friends kind of reaching out to them. What would you do if you've confronted someone and they either deny the issue when it's clearly evident or they're they're very com uh, combative about it is there something you could kind of do like I realize you can't force people to seek help but is there maybe a hotline or something of the sort 
Absolutely. So I'm I'm really big on hotlines and there's so many different ones. I mean, we would probably be here all day. One thing I will say is that it's important um, for us to really be grateful that at this point in 2020, you know, Google is at our fingertips, right? So everything we need, we can literally Google. Um, but you have the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. You have hotlines for individuals suffering from borderline personality disorder or suffering from PTSD or depression, etc. There are hotlines for folks um, in the LGBTQI community who may need to reach out and speak to someone due to what's going on in their community or what's going on with their families of origin, etc. But I'm all about us, um, you know, know, working together with those we love and really helping to hold them accountable. I'm huge on interventions, right? So I think that sometimes it needs to be not just you and the other person, but maybe you and another person that loves um, the family member that's struggling, maybe you and their partner or you and, 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 you know, a family member or a friend or something, you know, I'm certainly not saying we need to barge into people's homes with 10 people to kind of march them out to a therapist's office. But sometimes having that too really makes a difference because people are, they have a more difficult time combating what two people are saying, right? If if it's just the two of us, you can say, well, Letitia, this is just how you feel. That's your opinion. But if it's, you know, the two of us and we have Natalie, you know, saying the same thing, you know, she and I are echoing the same message. It's a little harder to deny that something's going on. And I think that we have to be willing Willing to risk friendships in order to save lives. Oftentimes people see trouble, they see that a person is struggling, but they don't want to offend. Well, I think it's 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 really silly to, to do that. And I think it's really irresponsible. Sometimes we have to be willing to risk things to save the lives of those we love. Definitely. I think those are some great pointers and things that people can really take a look at and see how they could potentially benefit someone in their family. So that's really good. The next thing we had listed here was why did mental health and discussing mental illness have such negative stereotypes for a long time in the media? I know we kind of touched on um, how it's grown in the sense of people being aware of it, but why do you think it initially stemmed as a negative connotation around it? You know what I think, and I and I think, as I said earlier, the media um, has done a good job of discussing um, mental illness as it relates to you know movies and TV shows, etc. You know, more has been put in books, etc. But if you think back, you know. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you had all these movies about people, you know, coming out of quote unquote insane asylums, right? And yeah. and wrecking havoc on neighborhoods and communities, right? So no one wanted to be associated with that, right? Like no one wanted True. to be like these zombies, right? These people who were totally murderous and 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 difficult and quote unquote crazy, you know, no, nobody wanted to be associated with that. So I think that those images definitely played a huge part in the stigma. I think the second piece is, you know, our society has more sympathy for individuals that we feel deserve sympathy. So what I mean by that is those of us who are born with learning disabilities or intellectual disabilities, it's almost like, well, they were born that way. Any physical yeah. deformities or disabilities, well, you know, they can't help it. They were born that way. But when it comes to mental illness, we are very quick as a society to say, well, they put it on themselves. 
You know, oh, that mom yeah. who, 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 you know, she's depressed, you know, because, you know, her husband's at work all day and she's there popping pills. Well, she should just go find something to do, right? Or that young person who's struggling with their self-esteem and, and really dealing with their anxiety. Well, if they just work harder, you know, things will be better. So I think that societal expectations have also played a huge role in the stigma, right? No one wants to be perceived as weak. No one wants to be perceived as unable to handle things. But I'll tell you something, in my 22 years, I have worked with people that if I said their names, you would know them, right? Because they have fame or they're financially, you know, well off. And I've worked with people that you wouldn't know. And the thing that makes us all human, the thing that I call the great equalizer is that all of our mental health is definitely something that we have to monitor because it is definitely on a thin line. We are all one or two situations away from not being okay. And it's important that we honor that when we are interacting with other people. I think it's very easy to judge that person that's kind of, you know, uh, the scourge of society or the person that we feel is weak or a person that doesn't handle things well. But you know what? Maybe they're just one or two situations away from where you are, you know, and we have to know that. I think having that empathy, that compassion and that understanding goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I was doing recently was I'm I'm rewatching Downton Abbey and the thing that is kind of related to this that I thought was interesting, I see how it develops is so in the show right now the first world war just ended and they've discovered that shell shock is a thing. Mm -hmm. Um and it's just kind of interesting how they kind of play through it historically at the time that they think that these men are broken and that they're kind of cowards experiencing these things. But then from what we know now, it's a completely different story. And it happened to a lot of people that at the time it was almost ignored. So it's kind of interesting how the stigma has switched that way and definitely for the better. Since there's less of a stigma these days, do you think that parents should start their kind of children young discussing mental health and kind of discussing their feelings so they have that foundation as they grow older? Absolutely. I think we have to normalize it. We have to normalize that it is okay to reach out for help and, and also recognize, right, that there's a difference between professional help and talking to friends and family. One thing I say all the time is that your friends and your family, well, they have skin in the game. They have certain outcomes. They have a certain life that they want to see you live, right? So their advice and their perspective is going to be based on that. It doesn't matter how much they love you or any of that. They have skin in the game. When you're speaking to a professional, someone who's able to scientifically help you work on how you think about things, right? Because it starts with our thoughts and then it goes to our behaviors, our moods, our attitudes, our actions, right? So working with someone to help change some of those things is totally different than seeking a friend for advice or seeking family members for advice. So I think that we have to normalize mental health as early as possible. You know, I'm actually um, working on a program for preschoolers because I want children as young as two and three to be able to clearly articulate their emotions, right? To be able to look at a chart and look at smiling faces or frowning faces or angry faces or sad faces and be able to point out how they feel, right? And identify it, know that it's okay. I, I 
sometimes think that we live in a society where people think we're supposed to just be happy all the time. And I tell people every day is not Christmas day or your birthday. You know, every day is not a 10 day and we have to be okay knowing that and teaching our children to be okay with that. So I'm actually working on a program for preschoolers, two and three year olds, to be able to really start to hone in on their mental health and express themselves more freely. So I think the earlier, the better. I, I never think that there's a time or an age that's too early for us to focus on our mental health. With that, do you think that's something that schools should maybe start introducing into their curriculums at a younger age as well? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I'm not going to age myself here, but <laughs> growing up several decades ago, you know, everything was all about, you know, drug abuse and and keeping your body safe. We had to pass like fitness tests and all of those things. And I think that's all great. But we also have to be able to acknowledge when there is anxiety, when there's depression, where there's PTSD, where there are any other mental health disorders that can be affecting us throughout our lives. So I definitely think that schools need to um, also start working on, you know, teaching young people about mental health services and access to services. Yeah, I definitely like the one thing you said, though, about like how all these individuals, even if they're not mental health professionals, they do have skin in the game, whether it's friends, whether it's family members, whether it's even teachers. So having that established at a really young age, that having emotions and feeling them is okay, because even you could think like back when we were younger and they'd have with little boys and be like, well, why are you crying? You're a boy. Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't cry. Like mm -hmm. boys don't cry. So even from that point, having that established in their minds, obviously then when they'd have any sort of emotion, I'm sure it would be attached to all of those negative terminologies as well. So even having that change, like you said, that can be one small adjustment that can make that large impact in the long run. So Absolutely. that actually leads into the next item that I had that we want to just chat about here, we can maybe discuss some good coping mechanisms to help people lo lower their anxiety, especially in these times, because I think coping is probably a large part of it as well. So maybe you can have some insight on that. Absolutely. So I think the one thing is to ensure that there is enough time to do some of the things that you love to do. I think that on a daily basis, we focus in on the things we have to do. And I'm certainly not saying that we should not, but every day you should cultivate joy, right? So I am literally Miss Great Joy, right? So the name <laughs> Letitia translates into Great Joy. And that's my company, Great Joy Counseling Consulting Services. But it's also what I feel my purpose is on earth to teach people how to cultivate joy. And you can find joy despite your circumstances by doing the things you love, right? So you may have a job that's super demanding or a very hectic family life, but are you also taking the time to garden? Or are you taking the time to read your book or to bake or to do whatever it is that brings you joy and to really ensure that that is done on a daily basis, even in small doses. Sometimes I, I'm an avid reader. And so obviously sometimes I don't have the time to read two or three chapters, but even if I can start my day, get a couple pages in, do some affirmations, really set my intentions, it makes a difference. And I think that we have to get back to that. And that's one of the things that I would say was kind of like the blessing in disguise with COVID. People are finding the time to get back to some of the things that they love, right? Because I think before we were just so inundated with busy schedules and doing what we had to do. And I think now we're able to do a bit more of what we want to do. So that has to continue. No, definitely. I think that's what we said even 
prior to COVID, everything was so busy. We're moving from one thing to another thing to this thing. So when we all stopped, we're like, oh, I could probably use a little bit more time for myself or I can go back to doing um, running or doing scrapbooking or binge watching this TV series that I wanted to for so long because we actually have the time to do that, which was something that we didn't have previously. So that's essential, I think, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that you kind of always hear that has a positive correlation with your mental health is physical fitness. Like just mm-hmm. kind of going for the gym, going for a walk. Is that something you would agree with and maybe kind of push people to do? Absolutely. Because guess what? When you do anything that is um, attacking your uh, physical health, right, you are able to release endorphins, right? So you have oxytocin, you have serotonin, you have dopamine, you have all of these amazing chemicals being released, and you're able to literally feel better. So I would say move your body. I don't think it has to be anything that is too rigorous or anything that's too difficult. But if you're going for a walk, you know, walk briskly or jump rope or, you know, run, but do something every day to move your body. It makes a huge difference in your mental health. I think that's definitely essential. And like we said, in COVID, I'm sure a lot of people are maybe and hopefully taking that into consideration if they haven't already. So before we close out for the podcast today, Leticia, it was great to have you on, but any other things you'd like our listeners to know that maybe we didn't touch on? I would just say to take the time to ensure that you are okay. Take the time to ensure that your loved ones are okay and know that it is okay to not be okay. And feel free to reach out to professionals who can provide you with insight and activities and point you in the direction towards mental and emotional wellness. Yeah, definitely love that. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And we did enjoy learning a lot about mental health and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you.